Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast When you call in and dopey put podcast. all your life on blast And you call dopey in podcast. and talk about your past Because your life was curious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery Located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared, to create a place where addicts and alcoholics are treated with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades of experience when treating addiction and alcoholism and also co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, as we say, SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and the incredibly spiritual sweat lodge, which is my favorite. I've been in a sweat lodge. Very spiritual experience. They also make sure that if you are kicking drugs, that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical when you're coming off of heroin, benzos, alcohol, crack, whatever. A comfortable detox is uh, the right way to do it. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California for help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, which is the dating app for people who choose a clean and sober way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got sober, you got clean, you got a new life, you got your shit together, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Petland discounts? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Oh, and by the way, it is totally free. Enter your profile into the CASL profiles and you will meet beautiful junkies and crackheads and alcoholics from all over the world. It is free. There's video chatting. Go now, the App Store and the Google Play Store, CASL. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Kit, which is, of course, Grady'sColdBrew.com. If you go to Grady's right now and you use the Dopey code 25, you save 25% on Grady's incredibly delicious cold brew coffee. It is sweet. It is strong. They brew it with chicory. It is a delicious taste. It is amazing with oat milk, goat milk, whole milk, skim milk, almond milk, even elk milk. However you like your cold brew, Grady's delivers. They are an independent company 
founded in 2011, founded in the Bronx up at Hunts Point, and Grady is a real person. When you order a Grady's kit, you will, re- you will receive 36 cups of cold brew, which is three batches of 12 cups. Once brewed, the coffee stays in the fridge for up to two weeks. It is really amazing. And again, if you're in the Dopey Nation and you use Dopey code 25, Dopey 25, you save 25% which is serious savings. Okay, I want to talk about a new podcast that has emerged from the deepest, darkest recesses of the Dopey Nation Facebook group. It is called Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Nat is a 40-something married father of two who has recovered from alcohol, heroin, crack, coke, and just about every other drug he got his hands on. Mike is a married 50-something father of three that got into the crack scene in the Bronx in the late 1980s. He let the booze get away from him, and now he works on his recovery daily in between being a lawyer and leading his son's Cub Scout den. Brought together by their common struggle, Mike and Nat get to know each other's addiction story on the air and realize they have more in common than they could have ever imagined. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and MiddleAgesRecovery.com. That's MiddleAgesRecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you, most importantly, by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of Dopey Patreon. Basically, the Patreon account is tons and tons and tons of bonus Dopey. Give two bucks, give five bucks, give ten bucks, and you will not believe the extra content you get. It's at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Check out Dopey Patreon, please. Also, if you want Dopey gear, it is available at the Dopey store at dopeypodcast.com. We have hoodies and long sleeves and T-shirts and tank tops and mugs. And we have teamed up with an amazing company out of Cincinnati, Ohio, called SRO Prince. They are a bunch of fucking recovering heroin addicts, too. So go to DopeyPodcast.com and order the latest in Dopey gear. And also, Christmas is coming. Maybe some dope wants a good Christmas gift. And also, I still have snapbacks. I have Dopey Podcast snapbacks. I have Oyve snapbacks. I have a few beanies. I have stickers. You Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. If you're waiting for a package, I've not sent anything out for a little bit because the mail was all fucked up. But I think because the election is over, the mail is going to get back to normal. So look for your packages soon. Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. Enough with the fucking ads. Here's the fucking show. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm here with my very good friend, Ray. 
I guess we're not testing the levels. That's, this is a test, right? Okay. Life, all of life is a okay. test in its own way. How are you, Ray? I'm good. Just had some chocolate. Yeah, I, I want to do a new T-shirt that says Dopey, fueled by chocolate. Yep, it was very good. Cadbury. The Cadbury Royal Dark Chocolate is a outstanding sample of chocolate, but a chocolate snob might think it is a pedantic and banal version. Mass market. It's because there's too much sugar in it, but that's what makes it so goddamn great. It's good. I never buy chocolate, but that's good. I buy chocolate all the time, and me and Nora love Cadbury Royal Dark. I also love the Dove Dark. Again, a sugary sampling of dark chocolate. You know your chocolate. I do. I've come to enjoy, again, the Ghirardelli 72% cacao, as well as (laughs) the Lint 72% cacao. But I'm thinking of dieting, and the diet would up my cacao level to 86%, decreasing sugar, eliminating carbs, back on the good foot again. I, I lost weight years ago, and I was eating a lot of chocolate. You need to have at least 86% cacao. I was eating Trader Joe chocolate. What percentage cacao was it? I don't know. I don't know. Do you ever do you go to Westside Market and see their chocolate selection by the register? No. That's, that's too highfalutin for me. Dude, the fucking prices at the supermarket here are twice as what they are in my town. Welcome to Manhattan. It's like, what the fuck went Try wrong? dropping off your laundry here. See how much that costs. So I, I, last week, I meant to talk about it on the show. When I went to the supermarket, I wanted to go down memory lane and remember the cookies that me and Chris went. And I always, we always got Le Petit Ecolier, which is the little <laughs> schoolboy dark chocolate cookie with biscuit. And then there was this other chocolate biscuit that I lived for. And I always forget the name of it, but it was called the Choco Leibniz. And the Choco Leibniz was cheaper than Le Petit Ecolier. And I went over there, and, and, and Catherine, who's French-Canadian, says I don't pronounce Le Petit Ecolier correctly. Well, French-Canadians don't pronounce it correctly. Do you know how to pronounce it correctly? No. I think Le Petit... Chris would be like, Ecolier. I don't know what he would say. He would say <laughs> it wrong. I think Le Petit Ecolier sounds good. If you're French or French-Canadian or Catherine, please correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, it's fucking six bucks. When I was a kid, they were $3 cookies. Well, that was 25 years ago. That's true. But in, in where I live, it's like four... They don't even have Choco Leibniz. Do you know about Choco Leibniz? No, I don't know any of this. Oh, my God. Dopey Nation, Choco Leibniz is possibly the greatest cookie. It is... It is basically where the Othello will make its jump-off point from the DNA matrix of the Choco Leibniz. What's happening with Othello? That's a good question. Right now, I'm nothing. <laughs> but that can change. Why are we so close together? What do you mean? Social, <laughs> it's, it's, COVID is over. Trump's on his way out. It's a, it's a new day. Everybody's going to get close together, take off their masks, and let it all hang out, finally. Sounds good. Um, why are we closer together than we usually? Are? I think we're like twice as close as we were last time. Are you uncomfortable no, with this level just, of closeness? You're right. So, Dopey Nation, we were going to record on Tuesday, but I felt uncomfortable recording the show before any election results were during the riots. I just didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. So I didn't want to put out a show. Like, I hate listening to a show where you know it's old. Oh, yeah. 
we'd be like, I wonder what's going to happen. We'd be like, we still don't know. Right. But, it is but a, my neighborhood is boarded up. It is ready for war. It's like a ghost town. It is. It, Trump was right about that. <laughs> um, and I want to tell a little story. And you actually know the story because you were on the phone with me when it happened, oh, yeah? which was election day, Tuesday morning. I was driving to my house. And we never get political. And I don't think we're going to get that political right now. But I was driving to my 12-step meeting, and uh, I was in Blue Point, which is a very Republican town in uh, Suffolk County, which is actually a Republican county in New York. And I forgot it was election day because it was so early, and I'm so apolitical. And You're beyond apolitical. What do you mean? You don't vote. You don't participate. I voted in 1992. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, New York is going to go blue. My vote doesn't count, and I'm also not registered. And what do I... I mean, I get so much spam as it is. Imagine how much spam I'll get if I register to vote. And you'll have to serve jury duty. Well, exactly. It's all... It doesn't doesn't seem like there's an upside to voting in New York. If New York was on the fence uh, in terms of, like, the deal, I also, like... If we didn't have electoral college also. Right, exactly. But I, frankly, I'm not, like... I don't like Trump. I don't like Biden. I don't like politics for the most part. Rasta don't work for no CIA. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so you're driving. So I'm driving down the street, and I forgot that it was election day, and um, there's all these cars, and I was like, oh god. And I was gonna. You know, normally I talk to Ray, and then I get off the phone with Ray, and I get my coffee, which I mix with half hot chocolate in the morning when I go to the the beach meeting. But it was so busy, I decided I wasn't gonna do that. But I'm driving really slowly, and there's and I see all these cars on the side of the road, and I see the last car on the side of the road is one of these Trump crazy pickup trucks with these black and white American flag with the blue stripe and with the red stripe. You know these. Weird, I don't know that one. Oh, they're they're scary New World Order American flags where they're not red, white, and blue. They're black and white American flags with one blue line. Because of the police, uh, oh, oh, or okay. one red line because of the firefighters, and this is what the the, the the back the blue flag, okay? And it feels like a new Star Wars fascist kind of flag. It's scary. Oh, this I flag. I haven't seen that. Here, one. hold on. Well, I'm going to pause the show. Yep. So I just showed Ray the flag. What do you think? Yeah, it's not good, like visually from a design point. It's a scary flag. It's like it's, it's yeah, it looks threatening. It 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 looks like it's meant to to scare us. I saw Mississippi's new state flag, and it's. Beautiful beautiful like whoever did that did a great job it's got magnolia flowers on it instead of like the um confederate flag right, right. stay with me on i'm just talking about mississippi. What was, was the old mississippi flag the confederate flag? yes and wow. they changed it now to this beautiful flag with a magnolia flower that sounds delightful um this magnolia much better flag. but don't you think that that black and white american flag is kind of like it's scary it looks threatening yeah it reminds i've never seen it well, I, it's all over my town. Oh. It's like we go to the diner and they have a big one, and Nora goes, Why do they have a back the blue flag here, mommy? And it's like, It's to make us feel uncomfortable, Nora. It's just weird to make the red, white, and blue flag black and white. That's the weird thing. It's like, It's a beautiful flag, the stars and stripes. Ain't that America? Yeah. You and me. Yeah. Ain't that America? Something to see, baby. Ain't that America, the home of the free, yeah. Little pink houses for you and me. Johnny Cougar. I mean, it's like these people, and I don't, again, Dopey Nation, I, I support everybody. You know, I'm going to get to the good part of this thing in a second. I just yeah, don't know you were why. Driving to the I don't know why they, they 
took away from the Stars and Stripes? Like, why did they want to do this? What is the psychology in wanting to scare everybody? But maybe they're not scaring each other. Maybe it's not meant to scare people. I, I, I want to know psychologically about this thing. Anyway, so I'm driving to the meeting, and I see the uh, pickup truck with the flags on it, and the last flag is a big Trump flag, and it says on the bottom, no more bullshit. And I'm like, I never was that close to a Trump flag, so I never knew what it said on the bottom of it. And I was like, no more bullshit. I was like... But Trump's the president. How could Trump... How, if, if Trump was running against... If Biden was the president and Trump was running against the president, he said, no more bullshit, president, but he's the president. Right, right. So, I don't think it says that on every Trump flag. On these... I, I, well, it said it on this one. And so I'm driving slowly and I'm, I'm just like, you know, in my morning mode and whatever, and there's a dude crossing the street. And he's. And I'm talking the phone with you. Yeah. And, and and we're probably having this exact conversation. And the dude walks in front of me, and he looks at me, and he smiles at me, and he nods. And I'm just. And I see him going to the Trump pickup truck. So I'm just like. I just look at. You're him. just spaced out yeah. driving. Yeah. And I just look at him, and then you didn't return his. You didn't go. Hey, how are you doing? I think I nodded. Yeah. But with a kind of angry look. <laughs> And, uh, and then I drive past him, and he looks at the back of the car, and he screams, fuck you. And I'm just like, Whoa. holy shit. But then I remembered the next day that on the back of our Subaru, it, Linda put a bumper sticker that says, make America grateful again in tie-dye. And I bet you he saw that. But that's kind of like, that's either way. That could that No, could. but it's like, making, it's like making fun of make America great again. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. Do you think this is too political a conversation for the show? No. I don't know. This is when you're in your fear mode. When you, when you start talking <laughs> like that, I can tell you're scared. No, I just don't think Make America Grateful Again denotes where so you were at politically. So why did he say fuck you? I don't know. Maybe he's... Is it tie-dye? Yes. Oh. But then you have like tie-dye people at your meeting that have Trump hats. Exactly. So. But so the point is... Saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. Little voice inside my head that said, don't look back. You can never look back. And the thing is this. I just found that that guy, that song was written by Tom Petty's guitarist. He did the whole instrumental track and gave it to Don Henley. And Don Henley just did the vocal on top of it. Don Henley didn't write the lyrics? He wrote the lyrics. All right. But he didn't write the music. That Mike was, Campbell did? Yeah, Mike Campbell wrote that, all that music. And Petty passed on it. He offered it to Tom Petty. He passed on it. Petty passed on the music. Yeah. The lyrics are what makes that song so good. It's a good. great song. It's the lyrics. Um, anyway, the point of the story is that... Um, you got yelled at. I got yelled at, and that <laughs> I cannot wait until people can get along again together because, like, this is a miserable time of division. You know, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not particularly a Biden supporter, but... I am a people supporter, and I love love, and I hate hate, and I hate division, and I hate the bullshit. I'm with Trump on the no more bullshit. I'm tired <laughs> of all this fucking bullshit, but I just wish, I think we just need Jesus to come again so we can all just get down with the love. That would be awesome. Right? I vote Jesus for 2024. You know, this reminds me, the only thing I can think that it reminds me of is during Vietnam, the Vietnam War. I remember tensions like this, but it's more like between generations, but I remember that that feeling like very tense at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, it's it's a little bit tense at, at our table. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> anyway, so that that's so we it looks like Biden's going to win and if you're a Republican dopey supporter, just know that we love you. You know, you're you're included. Everybody's allowed at the dopey dinner table. Dopey the dopey Thanksgiving table. Dopey is open to everybody. No matter what, if you're using, if you're clean. So hopefully this this election thing will be behind us. Hopefully there won't be a civil war. Hopefully there won't be an uprising. Hopefully, yeah. I don't think so. So there's some weird other thing happening, right? What? As you know, I, uh, I can't see the show notes, so I have no idea what's coming to, done this time. Here, you, I don't need to you're, see. You're them. not going to be able no. to read my oh, writing. Oh yeah, anyway. like usually I know. So like I've been working, I've been doing new work at Katz's. I've been working at their warehouse. I I just saw you doing some of your work. I've been doing customer service work. I've been working at the warehouse, and uh, I, they they wanted to train me on how to take phone calls from customers. Yeah. So like I wish I could have witnessed that. I, I worked at Katz's a long time. And when I you know, I worked at Katz's when I was a kid, I worked every station, I worked uh, I was a busboy, I worked the French fries, I worked the hot dogs, I sold meat by the pound. I did, oh, you've done everything there. I've done everything except did, I never cut sandwiches in the store. Did you ever curse out a customer? Yeah, many times. <laughs> many times. Many times I cursed out customers. Yeah, I figured you had. Um I made a girl cry. Did I ever tell you this story? <laughs> Where, like, basically there was a family of seven, and I don't usually... When I used to wait tables, I wouldn't let customers get what they ordered. Uh, I would, yeah, I saw that. I would change their order, and, and it was a party of seven, and I think six people... They wanted roast beef? No, six people ordered French fries. Yeah, and it's too many French fries. Too many French fries. And the seventh girl orders French fries. I said, No. I said, everybody else got French fries. Just eat theirs. Yeah. It's going to be you too many. You get like many. three orders is too yeah, much. I, I actually turned, I turned their five orders into three orders. Yeah. You know, making Katz's less money, but also less carbon footprint on the world. You yeah. know? And the girl started saying that she wanted the fries, and it was her birthday. <laughs> and then she started crying. Oh, no. And I said, stop crying. You're not getting the fries. <laughs> There's she, no crying in Katz's. And she cried, and then I got her the, the fries because I got scared that she was going to complain. Yeah. Um, but so back in the day, I would work on the back counter, and and for customer service on the back counter, there was no protocol or training. They would call and they'd say, uh, "Are you open?" And I'd say, "No, we're not open. We just hang out here where the stores <laughs> and answer the phone." Yeah. And like every, and that was like training for to to do cats as customer service back then was like to be snarky on yeah, the phone. Yeah. So like basically. Um, I, I'm like getting trained to do customer service on the phone yesterday. In, after in 2020 style, years later of of doing the work, and um, this woman calls up and she says, "Hi," you know, she was like from Tennessee, but she had a New York accent, mm-hmm. and she's like. I just got my package and I got a matzo ball soup and I know I didn't order a matzo ball soup. And I said, I said, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> and they started looking at me. I was like, and she goes, she goes, she goes I go, well, and I, I was like, seriously, I was like, what do you want me to do about it? You got the matzo ball soup. I was like, why don't you eat it? Yeah. And she goes, my husband makes the best matzo ball soups and I'm not going to eat it. And I said, hold on, please. <laughs> I, but she you, didn't get charged for it. No, she did get charged oh, for it. And I said, hold on, please. And, and everyone around me is like, you're not supposed to say, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> you're supposed to say, I'm sorry, the order is listed on the email and you yeah. could have called when you got your confirmation order it's basically saying like fuck you but you should have seen the email yeah, yeah. and i'm just more like fuck you 
What do you want me to do about it? Eat the, eat the matzo ball. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, and the woman's like, she goes, well, I'm not going to eat it. And I said, well, what are you going to do with it? And she said, and there's, <laughs> everyone around me is looking at me like I'm crazy. And they're like, She's like, I'm going to donate it to a soup kitchen. And I said, I said, that's great. I said, listen, I said, if you order again, put a note in, um, and maybe we'll give you something. Yeah. And then I hang up, and they were like, that's not the way you do customer <laughs> service. But I have news for the Dopey Nation that I was thinking about it, and I think the Dopey Nation deserves some of the greatness of Katz's. So I got a discount code for Dopey oh. fans. So if you guys want to have some of the best pastrami or corned beef or matzo ball soup or knishes or latkes, and you go to katzesdelicatessen.com and you put in the word... The secret word. The secret word, which is Dopey, you get 10% off. What do you think, Ray? Sounds good. Do you think... And, and I want to see... So if you guys want anything, you should order it. That, is that, that's a pretty ramshackled Katz's ad. Yeah. But Katz's... I mean, Ray had some bullshit to talk about Katz's. What? You were like, I can't believe you You order a platter and it's $120. Yeah, I saw the gift basket was $120. And I'm like, that looks like it makes two sandwiches. You're such a dick. Ray, Ray's so passive aggressive. I've never eaten at Katz's. You don't eat meat. I know. Uh, didn't I get you latkes once? No. Well, I will get you some latkes soon. And uh, Dopey Nation, if you ever want Katz's, you know, go to katz'sdelicatessen.com and use the Dopey code. And that will impress the people at Katz's that Dopey means something. Yeah. That would be cool. Like like thousands of orders. I remember when New York was like that. I remember one time I went into a shop and I was looking around and the guy was like, can I help you? And I was like, I'm just looking. He goes, why don't you go outside and look through the window? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was when New York, people should make signs that say make New York great again. The whole shtick at Katz's for me, I mean, like that's how Katz's always was. But when we were kids, me and my friend Jim and my friend Dave, uh, you know, got fake jobs at Katz's where we were supposed to do deliveries for them. Yeah. And we were supposed to like in, invent the Katz's delivery job, which basically I actually work now, but it was whatever. Yeah. You didn't do it? No. We would go in there and basically they would pay us by giving us a sandwich and then they would give us flyers and then we'd like throw the flyers in the sewer and go home and smoke <laughs> pot and play video games. <laughs> but when we got on the line to get the sandwich, um, the it was that there were actually Jewish countermen then. It was like oh. nineteen ninety two. Oh. When did it switch to Dominican? Just probably after that. Shortly after that. He was probably the last one. I went into Cass's in like nineteen eighty. I was with my friends and we we're like, what the fuck is this place? It's it was completely empty. Not a soul in there. And it was like a time capsule. And they're like, Oh my God, this is like Going in time, time travel, and it still is. But so we go, we go on. But it, but it was empty. Like I bet it's empty right now. Yeah. But we go, we go up to the counter, and the Russian Jew guy says to me, "What do you want?" I said, "Give me a pastrami and rye and mustard." And they go to Dave, "Give me a pastrami and my rye and mustard." And then they go to Jim, and Jim goes, "I'd like a turkey on white." And the guy goes, <laughs> "Get the fuck out of here!" And like that did, defined us. Why do y'all sell roast beef and turkey on white if? So we can abuse Goy. <laughs> but listen, we're, we're, getting, we're getting carried away here. It's a very exciting show today. We had a woman who is a writer, and she wrote about her life in New York City. Another very New York-based career is to be a dominatrix. Yeah. I know so many women that are dominatrixes. Still? Yeah. Well, I don't know, still during COVID, but... Like lifetime dominatrixes? Because this woman like did it for three years. Yeah, no, I've known people that do it for a few years. I, I know, 
I know a woman who's like 70 and still doing it. Well, that's a lifestyle. This woman was more like she was a junkie. Yeah. She wanted to make some money. And she wrote this amazing book called Whip Smart. Her name is Melissa Phoebos. It was a joy talking to her. Yeah, it was a really cool interview. And so here it is. So I'm very excited. I always say how excited I am to uh, record an interview, but I think I'm always excited to do it. And um, I think it's cool because we're addicts in recovery and we get to talk about our experience. And today on the phone and the Zoom, Zooming in from (laughs) Iowa, there's a ton of dopey fans in Iowa, by the way. Um, oh. I have the great Melissa Phoebos. Do I pronounce that right or I pronounce that wrong? You did. You did. That was perfect. And I just read her memoir, Whip Smart, the true story of a secret life where Melissa tells her story of being uh, a dominatrix for three years in New York City and, and also being a junkie. It's mm-hmm. it's amazing book. Amazing book. And um, Thank you. My first question is, we kind of join the book in like midstream and you're already like on heroin. So like mm-hmm. when when did you start taking dope? Were you in Boston when you started taking dope? I was. I was in I was in Boston. Um I let's see. I was like drinking and smoking weed at a really young age. I mean not really young for junkies, but really young for civilians. Um and then I think I started first time I ever did heroin I was a teenager maybe I was like 17 or something and I was like ew I feel sick this is boring um and then promptly kept doing it as many of us do um and it's funny now because like now that I'm old I can see how young I was then but I felt really old I felt like I had come to it late because every all my friends did so many drugs and um were much more advanced than me. Uh, but I moved out of my family's home when I was like 16. So I was living on my own. And by the time I was, I would say by the time I was like 18, I was trying to stop. Where, then, where were you living on your own so young? How were you living on your own? I living in Boston. I was living like in Somerville in Boston and in Jamaica Plain. And I, you know, my parents probably would have paid my rent. They definitely would have paid my rent. They're like very nice people. Um, but I wanted to do so many more drugs than I could do in my hometown that I was basically like, I'm moving out of here. I'm dropping out of high school. I'm going to take night classes and I'm going to support myself because I want to be able to do whatever the fuck I want, you know? And so I worked full time. I was a waitress at like a million trillion restaurants in Cambridge and yeah. I was a waiter also, and and I could I was a waiter at Katz's Deli for eleven years. So, oh wow! So Classic. I I equated a lot of your your cash holding from dominating people to my dominating people as a Jewish waiter. <laughs> um, yep. One of my yep. favorite phrases in your book, and it's towards the end of the book, you talk about. Uh, annihilating your innocence, you know? And I think I, I often, like, when I reflected on my career as a drug addict, I I wanted to annihilate my innocence. You were talking about becoming a dominatrix when you described annihilating your innocence. But, like, when I hear you talking about even getting your first place because you wanted to do as mm-hmm. many drugs as you wanted to do, like, mm-hmm. that's really what was happening, right? 
totally. It's totally what was happening. And, and I think it was very much sort of part of my love affair with drugs and alcohol was that, um, you know, being innocent is so vulnerable. It's sort of a synonym for vulnerability, right? When you don't know things, um, I don't know, you're, you're, you're exposed in a certain kind of way that I found almost intolerable. And for me, doing drugs and alcohol felt like a way of stripping that away, you know, um, because nothing surprised me when I was high, right? <laughs> like anything could happen and I would respond to it exactly the same way. Like I could com- completely control my affect and, uh, and it was the same thing I was trying to do as a dom too, where it was just like, if I keep doing drugs and I keep exposing myself to wild shit, nothing will surprise me. Nothing Nothing will scare me. I will be impenetrable, right? right? And that's that's what I wanted. Basically, it's an opportunity to not be yourself and kind of be who you want to be or be some version of yourself that you want to be where you're not. Mm-hmm. It's funny, innocent and vulnerable being, mm-hmm. you know, being like weak. Whereas now, I mean, like I have two daughters. So like I've been, I've been reading a bunch of women drug addict memoirs and like <laughs> being really terrified uh, for my kids. And obviously I'm a drug addict and, uh, but I wasn't a woman. I'm, I wasn't a girl. So like somehow it's different. And, um, and your mother was a Buddhist psychologist and your father was a sea captain. And you said mm-hmm. you and your mother were ridiculously close until like puberty, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And neither of them are addicts either. You know, it's on both sides of my family, but, um, I think like I was this sort of, I mean, I think like a lot of us, I was very perceptive and very aware of other people's expectations of me and kind of a people pleaser and a master manipulator. And I was just like this kind of very good kid, very good independent kid. And then like adolescence happened and it was like... I was like the changeling. It was like, they were like, who is this? Where did you come from? What did we do wrong? And I really like, I don't know, people have a lot of theories about this and and different kind of understandings of their own addiction, but I can definitely recognize being an addict from like behaviors I had in childhood, you know? Like, I don't think there's anything anybody could have done. I would have found my way to dope no matter what, you know? Explain that to me. Like, like, what were some telltale signs in your childhood that you can look back on and be like, I was definitely an addict? Yeah, I just had that, like... All right, a few things. I was weirdly secretive. Okay. I used to take shit. I think I wrote about this in the book. I used to take shit from my house and bury it in the yard and draw little maps and just like completely got off on the weird power trip of like knowing things that other people didn't and being up to things that other people didn't know I was up to, which obviously continued to play out uh, for a long time in my life. But I also just whenever something made me feel good, I just wanted to do it to death. Like I could turn anything into a kind of compulsive noose, right? Like sometimes I say, and this sounds like annoying, 
and nerdy, but that reading was my first drug of choice because I read books as a kid like a junkie. Like I was like a book fiend and my parents would be like, please go out of the house. Um, But I just like to be sort of transported to like remove myself from the story of my life, to feel like I had some control, like you said, over who I was and how much of the world sort of like got into me and touched me. I would, I would just do anything. So it was like sugar, TV, um, attention, like secrets, anything. I would just do it and do it and do it and do it and do it in a way that was like, I knew wasn't regular. Do you remember, do you, were you the right age for the D.A.R.E. program? Do you remember that? I, I remember it, but I was, I think, yeah, I was totally the right age, but in my school, like they didn't, they didn't do stuff like that. But tell me your D.A.R.E. story. (laughs) So it, you know, they brought the D.A.R.E. program to school and I was like, I was a good student and like a nice kid. All of my like weird compulsions were still sort of like brewing under the surface a little bit at that point. And it was maybe like fourth grade and, you know, it was just say no. Uh, and the cop in our school brought in like the drug box on the last day. Of no, they didn't, they didn't do that in my school at all. They didn't do anything like that, but keep going. Yeah, so yes. It was like a little briefcase that you opened it up and it had all these little compartments uh, and they had, it was a little bit dated. It had like a bunch of pills and a little burnt spoon and some roach clips. And it was like, here are all the bad drugs. And it was meant to like terror us. And I remember standing there and I didn't even know any adult addicts. My parents didn't even drink, but I looked at the drug box and all of that sorted shit in there. And I remember thinking I would do any of it. Like I would try any of it. I was just like, I'm curious one time at least for all of those. And I don't know, like that was just in me. You were 14 on this day. No, younger, younger, way younger. I was like 10. Wow. So that's real predisposition. I th- I know I remember when I was a little kid um I would babysit at this at this house on my block and I was like 10 or 11 or something and I was babysitting for a 5-year-old and and it was a Beach Boys biopic called Summer Dreams and in the Beach <laughs> Boys biopic um what's his face um Manson shows up you know Charles Manson shows up oh god and he's talking about acid and somehow he talked about heroin and I remember getting freaked out but like feeling something in my arms this like crazy feeling and I was like Mm -hmm. this is and I I checked it all at the door and I I didn't really do any drugs until I was like in my late teens um, mm-hmm. Because I was so sad. I had such a nice, safe life. When's the first time you uh, got drunk or got high? I was 12, I think. I was like 11 or 12. So you, I mean, I, I had a late start. I had a total, I was totally sheltered. You had a nice, yeah. proper alcoholic start. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I felt like, yeah, like I said, I felt like I came into things late, but I, but I definitely remember like getting drugged that first time and like I got sick. I was such a puker. I was always puking on everything. I was just like constantly puking. I used to carry plastic bags in all my pockets because I was always puking in public. But um, but when I was a kid, I remember getting drunk and like Wait, hold on, it hold wasn't on, hold even on. fun. You carried plastic bags because you needed to vomit into the bag and put the bags into your pocket? Or you throw away no. the no, no, no. I wouldn't put it back in my pocket. Uh, but I was 
just like, you know, I don't know. I was the kind of addict who no matter what I was doing, I was just going to do it until I was retching. And in some ways, I think like my gag reflex definitely saved my life because I should have OD'd so many times. But like, because who does cocaine until they puke like I did? Um, and anyway, so I was just always doing so much of stuff that I was always getting sick. Um, and I was always like hungover or like weird dope hungover and um and so what I actually would do a lot was when I went to Dunkin Donuts I would ask for I would get like a donut and then I would ask for extra bags because their waxed bags were really really like sealed and so I would keep those like in my pocket or in my purse and then I would just twist them up and throw them in a trash can but it was always good to have you know because you don't want to puke on the subway Always prepared. Yeah. I'm very disgusting. Yeah, I thought I-, I was so organized. I really did. I thought that I was like master at life management. Well, you know? you, I mean, I have to say you were very organized. I also have to say that, you know, when you move out so early, you moved to New York uh, to go to school. Um, did you have a habit when you came to New York? Yep. Fully, full, full-blown habit. Yeah, I actually, moving to New York... This is talking about innocence. Um, Moving to New York was partly an effort to run away from my addiction. I was like, this is my bad news boyfriend. If I get away from him and all of my stuff, then I won't be a heroin addict anymore. And um, clearly New York is like not the right place to go to run away from heroin. (laughs) Well, it's like there's an old story about like... uh David Bowie moving to Europe to get off of heroin and he moves to Berlin with Iggy Pop <laughs> and Berlin was like the heroin capital of Europe. So you moving to, to Bed-Stuy to stop doing mm-hmm. drugs in like the 90s. Yep. Was that the 90s or was it the early 2000s? When it was 99. Yeah. It I mean, was it's 99. Like, yeah. I used, I was copping in Bushwick in 99. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to be doing well. Anyway, but what I didn't get from the book, and I would love insight into Mm -hmm. this, is I didn't get the sense that you came to Brooklyn totally strung out or hooked, and what an opportunity being a dominatrix must be for somebody with a heroin habit. Mm -hmm. It really was. It was... um it was great uh, because, you know, it's cash, um, it's pretty fast, and you don't have to work that much, right? Because what I really wanted to do was just, like, get high and, you know, at least think about being a writer. Um, I didn't really want to be working a lot. So, um, yeah, it was it was pretty perfect. And in some ways, it felt like a kind of renaissance in my addiction for a little while because I was, like I said, I had already, like kicked cold turkey so many times by the time I went to New York. I was like, I need to get away from this. And when I got to New York, things got really, really dark because I didn't know anybody. And so I would just go like to Tompkins Square Park and look for a a high person. And then I would be like, will you cop for me? And of course, like 50% of the time I got ripped off and the other 50% of the time, like they would score for me and then we would both get high, but it was like super sketchy. It was not good dope. Um, and I was really, really isolated. And I lived in this like little SRO in Chelsea, actually, it was like a tiny little room. Um, 
And it was the only time I can really say like in all my using and really in all of my life that I was suicidal um, because I was just like completely, I, I was really sort of hitting bottom. And then I got the job as a dominatrix. I moved to Brooklyn with some friends and then I got the job as a dominatrix and that like it infused my life with cash, but also it was just like a complete change of scenery. It was like a cultural geographic, you know? And and then it was almost like using didn't seem as bad for a little while before I sort of started scraping the bottom again. But well, living in a, I mean, and anybody who doesn't know what an SRO is, an SRO is a single room occupancy, like room in Chelsea. And like for, and that's the neighborhood I grew up in. And for me to hear, Melissa, that that's how you live, that's like how like the junkies in the 70s and the 80s in New York lived so it was like ultimate junkie fantasy so so that you could move to Bed-Stuy with friends it, it's not yeah. so down and out in the same way now when, yeah. when you found the the I guess was it on the back of the village voice like how did you mm-hmm. get it was at the back of the village voice yeah, it was an ad in the back of the Village Voice, um, like in the classifieds, and it was like good money, no sex. Uh, that's basically all I remember. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Um, and and I went to an interview and I got a job, you know. And it turned out to be like one of the posher dungeons in the city. It was really, really impressive looking place. Um, yeah, and and you know. Well, well, you know the rest. You I, read I, the well, rest. I, I, I know what I know from the book, but I definitely don't <laughs> know the rest. What I want to know is I know that when I grew up, again, I was very sheltered. For this heroin addict I became, I was very sheltered. And my only interaction with anything... Actually, I had a friend when I was when I just started doing heroin. I had a friend who lived in Chelsea in this beautiful loft, and his roommate was a dominatrix, and she fascinated me. But I was so innocent, I didn't know anything about it. And what I knew about dominatrix was like from bad comedies, you know, like right. whips and chains, and like I had no idea how much anybody would get hurt or how much sex was involved. I mean, I learned more about dominatrixes from your book than I've ever known anywhere else. Um, how much? did you know about it before you got into it? Very, very little. Probably the same as you. I had one conversation with a friend of a friend, with a neighbor, um, and she just seemed like she had her shit together. She was like going to law school, and she had good outfits, and I was like, well, if she can do it, I can do it. Um, And, yeah, but I didn't know, like, what it would consist of. I think I had also kind of a cartoonish idea of it. Um, And, you know, I think it goes back to, like, when I was that kid who liked to have secrets and liked to be, like, up to, like, some weird secret shit that nobody knew about. And this felt like that on a much grander scale, which that part of it was definitely true. But I had no idea I would be, like giving people enemas and I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that I'd be peeing on people every day for my job. Um, but that's like, you know, pouring coffee to dominatrices. So no, I knew very little. So it was, um, you know, and for a while after I did it, I was like, you know, I was a waitress for like 10 years or something before, I became a dominatrix and I was like, the money's better. The hours are better. Like I wish everybody knew about this and it didn't really occur to me that like not everybody would want to do that instead of pouring coffee. And there was definitely something in my personality that was, that was into it. I I think it's fascinating. I also just like, 
I keep thinking about you as this drug addict who basically gets to walk into this situation where you get to be another person, which is always appealing to a drug addict. And mm-hmm. and I think there was a very chic thing to the idea of being a dominatrix at that point, you know, and there still mm-hmm. is. I mean, like, you get to look hot and, like, wear mm-hmm. clothes and, like, have power. Um I'm fascinated by I, I like I even though I just read the book, you know, and I'm I'm kind mm-hmm. of like I, I want to get into like all the different showers that somebody might get <laughs> because that's like my favorite thing. Like my favorite thing. Okay, it's like when my daughter uh, poops in her diaper, right? I say, and I just think this is funny. I say, "What color is your poop?" And she says. Brown. <laughs> so when I hear you write about brown showers, there's just something funny about the word brown. I don't know. I mean, poop is hilarious. Uh, I definitely like being a dominatrix is a really funny job. Right. I left my ass off in that job. We had a really, really good time. Um, there are definitely some descriptions in there that I now, you know, it's been 10 years since I published that book where I'm like, did I really have to put all of that in? You did. Um, you did a service. But I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm you, glad that I put it in for you. <laughs> tell us about the first time. Cause like, I didn't get a sense that every time you had a session, you had to, to piss on somebody. What was the first Pretty- time? Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, it was, um, you know, I remember the first, it was definitely like on my first day and I was sort of apprenticing with a more experienced dominatrix and, you know, she was giving a golden shower to her client and I was like, whoa, how regular is that? And she was like, real regular. Like, if you're not interested in doing this, you can't do this job. And I was like, okay. Um... And the first time I did it, I was like, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to because you spend your whole life conditioning yourself to pee in a toilet, right? Or I did. Um, And, but it was totally possible. And as it turned out, it was really sort of, I don't know, it like wasn't a big deal very quickly. So yeah, that was like, Every day that I worked, I would definitely piss on somebody. Um, the other stuff was less common, and I was less interested in doing it. Um, but it did happen a couple of times. Um, oh, no, the first, and that was, your first brown shower story is like one of the best moments in the book. I mean, it's really gross, but it's also <laughs> it's really descriptive. And like, it's like when the, you kind of put the switch in your head that you're going to mm-hmm. do it and like and you have to get the the chair because you can't shit mm-hmm. standing up i mean <laughs> um but what i also want to know is like basically you have this power um but at the same time it's like these men are coming in and sort of paying you to do this so the power becomes mm-hmm illusionary in a way Mm -hmm. is like how Mm -hmm. how much did you change with the initial power and how quick did it become obvious that it was a two-way street it was definitely kind of an arc like in the very beginning I felt pretty innocent I was new to it definitely the, the men that I was seeing knew a lot more about it than I did and were probably getting off on that 
And then I would say like within the first year, probably within a few months, I was like, oh, I see. I can sort of play out any kind of character I want here. And like you said, it was like such a thrill just to be a different person and also to be a kind of person or persona that was so unlike anyone I'd ever been. Like I was never a bully or I don't know, like I certainly had never slapped anyone in the face or spat in their face. And those turned out to be two of my favorite things to do when I was a dominatrix. I loved face spitting and, and face slapping. Um, and so there was like a weird, it felt like a weird loophole in character where I could sort of feel what it felt like to be a violent person, to be a cruel person, but it was for people who wanted me to, you know? And so that was like a huge ego trip for a while. And then I would say like by my, sometime in my second year, um, I definitely started to feel pretty skeeved out by a lot of my sessions and, and, you know, it was my job. So it wasn't like I always got to do the sessions that were fun for me. I had to do a lot of stuff I was not in the mood for, um, and deal with a lot of guys who were kind of on a power trip with me. And that started to feel pretty humiliating. I think it felt humiliating all along, but I wasn't really registering it until I was in it for a while. And I'll tell you, when I got clean, when I got off dope, it got a lot harder. Like to. that really precipitated the, the end of it because I couldn't I couldn't just turn off the things that didn't feel good anymore, you know? Sure. And 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 in the beginning, I know that you were constantly shooting speedballs. Um mm-hmm. and how much drug culture is enmeshed with dungeon culture? Is it a big part of it? Were you hiding it? Like was it was every other dominatrix like on coke or heroin or what was the scene like? Yeah, I think, um, sorry, my chihuahua's barking out there at the UPS now. Um, it really varies from house to house. At a lot of places I used to hear, they were kind of like a never ending party and everybody was like blowing lines and walking in and out of each other's sessions. But the place where I worked, it was really strict. There was like no drugs allowed. And so I definitely was hiding it. I was like doing it in the bathroom because um, I knew there were like hidden cameras in other places. And so I was always doing it in the bathroom and then going and doing my sessions or whatever. But um, yeah, I had kind of a routine. And sometimes I would have clients, like sometimes the men I saw would like bring some Coke or um, want to do poppers and stuff like that. But it really wasn't much of a drug culture in the place where I worked, which I was grateful for in the end. Um, but I think it was it was mostly just me. Well, I... I- I want to read something that you wrote in the book about fear and heroin, and I thought it was just very brilliant. Uh, And you wrote, The beautiful thing about heroin is that it eradicates fear. It's hard to know how much of it you suffer from until you experience total freedom from it. Most of the buzzing, the anxiety... The ticker tape that streamed ceaselessly through my mind was motored by fear. What's going to happen? How can I control it? What can go wrong? What has already gone wrong? How can I fix it? What if I can't fix it? What if I'm not good enough? What if nobody else is? What if there is no use in anything and so on ad infinitum? I mean, that's basically like my story right there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so to have the crazy running both things that you're having this career that pays you more than anything you've ever had and you get to be another person and you get to dominate, but you're also humiliating yourself and mm-hmm. the client. I mean, heroin seems like the ultimate thing to have for that. It was perfect. It really was perfect. You know, like I used to say sometimes when I was uh, a dope fiend where, and I was like, the thing that I love about heroin is that I can do anything. Like it makes anything tolerable. I could be like, you know, whatever, um, any sort of sorted scenario and like basically be feeling pretty good, which to me felt like an amazing gift at the time now it feels really really sad to me because it means like as long as I have heroin I can sort of infinitely lower my standards you know um and it really sort of made tolerable all of the things that became intolerable after I no longer had it anymore yeah it was like the perfect drug for me I totally when I found it it was like meeting my soulmate you know and since then I've had to figure out so many other things to quiet that like ticker tape you know what I mean I, I it's totally, a big part of my sobriety no I, I totally know what you mean I I had the same thing I was like 23 and or 24 and I'd become a TV producer and I used it to to feel better and if heroin can keep you feeling better nobody would stop using it you know what I mean it's like there's no way yep. to maintain <laughs> anything with it or else we wouldn't be sitting here sober having found a spiritual solution heroin was a great solution except that it really stops working quickly you know yep yeah so yeah and it's you know it's one of those things too it just like created so much more anxiety you know it's like sort of this um infinite feedback loop because it would quiet the anxiety and then it would create the anxiety and then i would i would need it to quiet the anxiety uh what do you do now what are your go-to sort of like uh quiet the voices inside your head practices me i well Mm -hmm. number one is like prayer like mm-hmm. every morning I get mm-hmm. on my knees and I put my head against the ground and I like mm-hmm. ask God to help me not be crazy. I ask God to give me a vision for what I want to do. And I'm not, you know, I, I grew up in a Orthodox atheist Jewish home. Like there was no God. So for me to right. tell you that it's like, it's a, it was a big stretch for me to figure out mm-hmm. that that could quiet my mind. Uh, being active, you know, being busy, working on yep. stuff, creating stuff um what about you yep what do you do to quiet your oh what do i do what do you do to quiet i do your all mind? of the same things um and similarly i didn't grow up in a religious household at all like my dad is an ex-catholic and so he was always like people like spirituality is stupid people of religion are sheep um so it was a leap for me and but I, I pray and meditate every day. I do like morning journaling, read my little affirmations. Um, and exercise is a really big one for me. Like I've been a runner basically since I was a teenager, but really seriously since I got sober. And that's a huge, huge part of what makes my head quiet. And for me also writing, you know, like writing is a way of like, it's like I, I it's a way of reflecting on my experience and getting insight and understanding what's going on inside me, but it's also a way of getting out of myself. Um, and so in a sense, I think I've built my whole life around those kind of survival methods, like the things, the ways that I found to sort of 
maintain my mental health that are not using heroin. Right. Sort of everything I do. <laughs> no, I hear you. I, I tried running last week. My wife is trying to run, so she's like, come run with me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and we went out and we walked and then we ran. We walked and then we ran, and I, I liked it, but it see it felt so hard. It was so hard. You know what I mean? Like my, mm-hmm. and like I, I like I want to be that person who leaves the house and goes running and comes back sweating, but in between leaving and coming back, it seems so painful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's really hard. It does get easier, but you have to push through like a pretty long hazing period before it starts to feel good and you get high from it, you know? I feel like the same thing with writing. Like I've been trying Mm -hmm. to write, like I'm working on, I've been working on a memoir forever without really working on it because of fear and because of discomfort and because I'm uncomfortable. I want to know though, um, what was like, the bottom like why what what brought you to recovery like what made you feel like it had to stop mm-hmm. yeah I um you know I had always had this sort of story uh that if I was bad enough, like if I was like a real addict, and this was a joke because I was obviously I was like a horrible junkie. Uh, but but my story was if I was a real junkie, uh, you know, my friends would stage an intervention or like my nice parents would find out and they would insist that I go to rehab and rehab in my mind was like an all-inclusive resort where I would go and talk about my feelings and wear slippers and drink watery hot cocoa and it would like be fun um and so I was sort of waiting for that to happen but you know I had been like keeping secrets and having a double life for like since I was a kid and so I was really really good at it and I had this moment, um, I was alone in my bedroom in Bed-Stuy and I was shooting speedballs. I think I was actually shooting speedballs with crack, which was particularly gnarly. And, um, and I was totally isolated. And in fact, I was hiding it from my roommates. So I think I was doing it by flashlight or candlelight. And the way I used to get high at that point was I would take the phone, which was a landline, <laughs> and I would put the landline in my shoulder and hold it against my ear as I was shooting up, just in case I felt myself starting to die wow. so that I could possibly dial 911 and like blurt out my address. This was me, my life management skills, right? Um, and it just like, I had done that so many times before. And just like on this particular night, I just had a moment um, where I was like, I just could see so clearly that I was going to die, that like I, that nobody was going to find out. Nobody was going to swoop in and rescue me. I was going to die. And that's how everyone in my life was going to find out. Um, and, you know, my mom was a therapist, so um, I pretty much knew what to do at that point. Um, but it was just like it was like the clouds parted for a second. And I was like and I saw what was happening and it was like standing on the edge of a cliff, you know. That's amazing. Um, and then you went to a meeting right after that, or that, what about what, what was the withdrawal? Like, did you get super sick? How did you kick? 
Yeah, I mean, I had kicked so many times, um, and mostly I just like sweat it, just gutted it out, you know. Um, sometimes I would go if you went to the methadone clinic. I used to go to this methadone clinic. There was one in Bedside, but there's another one by the old Village Voice offices, like it's by the reunion, yeah. kind of by Aster. And I would go stand outside and I would wait for the people who were in the methadone program, and I would buy their methadone off of them, and then I would slowly you know um or sometimes i would get like a little bit of morphine or some ativan like i was just always sort of jerry-rigging it myself um and so i had done that lots of times before and so i just did the same thing again you know i probably got like some valium or something and just like sweated and shivered for like three and a half days or whatever um and then I was basically for the last like two years of my using, I was almost always like kicking or relapsing. So I was trying to stop all the time. And so I was just like high and then sick and then high and then sick, like on like a two week schedule or whatever. Um, but yeah, then I, t- I basically kicked and took myself to a meeting and uh, I mean, I knew, you know, it was so obvious. And as soon as I got there, though, I remember the speaker didn't have, it was a, it was N.A., and the speaker didn't really, I didn't have that much in common with her, um, but she just talked about, um, she talked about, like, promising herself day after day that she was going to stop and just breaking that promise and breaking that promise. And, like, I had degraded my own self-esteem in that way for so long that it was such a relief to hear somebody else say it out loud that I was like, I don't know. I, I went to meetings every day for years after that, you know, I just knew, I knew that it was where I belonged. So first of all, like I have to say that to hold the phone to your ear while you're shooting (laughs) speedballs, it actually is a life management skill that most people don't have. I mean, like, I think that your story is so interesting in so many ways. Like for me, I kicked a million times, but if I wasn't separated from the world, I couldn't maintain my sobriety. Like, and I, I remember reading in your book, like you kept, you know, you'd go to AA and you'd lie mm-hmm. and you'd use mm-hmm. and, and your sponsor mm-hmm. was, was you, when eventually you got a sponsor, she was understanding. But when I would put myself in your shoes, whenever I was one foot in and one foot out and I felt any sort of physical sickness, I was always weak and I always just needed to put something in me to feel better. Like I couldn't muscle it. You know what I mean? I could not Mm -hmm. stomach the pain. I needed to be separated from it. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that's an amazing... I don't know. It's a cool thing to me that you could like, that's like an old school junkie thing to be like, fuck it. <laughs> give me five Valiums and I'll, I'll see you next week. You know what I mean? I think, I think you had a lot of resolve. Yeah, it's, it's fun to hear you frame it that way because it felt like I, I feel like I, you know, I don't, looking back, I'm like, God, I did it the hard way. Like it would have been, I just totally should have gone to rehab, you know, but I was so committed to keeping it a secret. And that was the thing. I think I just didn't go to rehab because I didn't want to tell anyone. And so it was easier to just be like, I'm sick and not answer the phone for a week, you know? No, I appreciate that. I, 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 I was just a big pussy. You know what I mean? And for yeah. me, for me, rehab was like going to, sometimes I went to a couple of fancy places and I went to a, sh- a ton of public shitty detoxes, but I would treat the shitty detoxes like the most extravagant rehab. Like I take three, <laughs> three packets of hot chocolate and put it in the cup and make a peanut butter sandwich and think I was like <laughs> on the love boat or something. Um, but how and then that's when it gets really interesting i think 
because you get clean and you start working the program and you're still in this career that's insanity and also secret keeping, right? Mm-hmm. How did you mm-hmm. make peace with that? And, and how did working the steps uh, and being a dominatrix go together? Yeah. Well, you know, the little grace period when I first started working the steps where I was still doing my job and I felt so much better, you know, like I experienced, I was just like so relieved of not having to like be kicking all the time and be miserable all the time. And I remember actually doing a few sessions, like my best friend was also a dom and she was also getting, we got sober together and we would be in sessions. We would be like double teaming some dude in a session and yelling program slogans at him and be like, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth, you know, like, <laughs> um, shut up and listen, uh, and just That's cracking up and dying. So fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there was a fun little grace period where I thought I could do both of them. And then it just, you know, there was so much lying required in that job. Like I just had to fake it all the time, you know? And, and there was something like, I don't think I quite knew this before, but while I got sober and I was working the steps and I was working really hard for the first time in my life to be honest, to be honest with other people. And also, and maybe primarily to be honest with myself and to let myself know all of the things that I actually knew. Do you know what I mean? And so it was like, it just started to become really clear to me that I, that I knew that it wasn't good. It wasn't for me, you know, that it was, it was, um, corroding my integrity in a way that started to feel very clear. And I kept doing it for a while after that. And then I started to get like this horrible anxiety. Um, and I've since learned that this particular kind of anxiety always happens when I'm trying to sort of make myself do something that I need to stop. And I don't want to admit it to myself. I start to get like free floating anxiety. Um, and the breaking point came when I went to a meeting one day and I was speaking at the meeting. I probably had like you know, a year at this point. And, um, and this young woman after the meeting, it was a really good qualification and, or I felt really good about it. And this young woman came up to me afterwards and she was like, Oh my God, you told my story. I'm counting days. And that meant a lot to me. And I felt so good. And I went to work that night at the dungeon and that girl was there and she had just been hired by the dungeon. And I felt Holy shit. Mortified. I was just like, it was so clear to me that like her seeing me there felt like it was undoing whatever I had given her in the meeting. And I was like, okay, these things are incompatible, you know? And I quit a few weeks after that. I think another piece, I mean, because then when you shared your story, you didn't share that you were a dominatrix. That was yeah, not Yeah, no, I never shared that. Right. So, like, that was a secret, and it is very mm-hmm. much akin to, like, the secrets we keep when we're using or the things we right. hold on to when we're getting better. Um, one thing, I mean, again, like, I learned a lot about just dominating versus submissive and all this stuff, and it seemed like... When you when you would be in a session with somebody that you would dominate and then you would be submissive, how 
weird was that? Or, I mean, in a way, it seemed almost more normal because, like, when you talk about it with some of the clients who were less disgusting, let's say, um, <laughs> it becomes, like, almost like a relationship, a back and forth, like a duet. Um, what, what was it for, like... It, it, the power changes, though, right, in that situation. Yep. Yeah, it, that was one of the things that, like, I never thought I would do. Um, even though I think I was, like, probably, like, more submissive than dominating in my private life, like, letting the clients do stuff to me always seemed like... I don't know. I, I was just, I had a hard line about that for a while. Um, and you know, something, something kind of happened. Like most of the clients at the dungeon were like these men who had pretty high powered jobs. They were like fancy stock brokers. Um, and there are people who sort of wielded a lot of power in their everyday lives. And some of them would just come in and be like, they wouldn't even really be into S&M. They would just be like, I'm tired of being the boss. Like, just boss me around for an hour. Tell me what to do, you know? And I feel like that dynamic sort of started to happen to me being right. a dominatrix because I had to direct the show all the time. And at a certain point, I was like, I want to break, you know? And so that was part of it. And the other part of it, I think, was... Um, just sort of curiosity and like actually bringing a little bit more of like the things that I found erotically interesting into the workspace, which ultimately was like, didn't work out. I think that actually made it harder in the end, but, but I think I was bored and frustrated and sick of doing the stuff I was used to doing. Right. You had to show more of yourself in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. And also being sober, mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I get it. I mean, I think it's such an interesting book because also you're when you're getting like when I work the steps and I'm finding my true self, like and that was one of my favorite phrases when I got sober, my genuine self, like the person mm -hmm. that I always was underneath all this stuff. And you're finding that and and you're doing this thing that's totally kind of not that. It's like this quadruple freedom to be able mm -hmm. to be sober, be yourself and get out of this thing. You know, I mean like Yeah, yeah. It was like that way of sort of pretending to be someone else just got complicated. Like I had always loved that. I had sort of loved the way that I could move between different social groups and sort of fit in and like morph into whatever people needed me to be. But like that stopped feeling so good and started feeling like, like lying, you know, once you get used to like being your true self, you realize where it's at and you don't want to be your fake self anymore. No. And there's so much freedom and there's so much potential in, in being in recovery and being sober. Now, one of the great traditions of dopey, and I should, I, I never am smart enough to tell the person this before we start. I always spring <laughs> it around now, um, is we love dopey stories like dumb or crazy or terrible drug stories. Can you tell <laughs> us like one of your favorite worst drug stories? Yeah, yeah, I have lots of lots of dopey stories. Go okay, long. let me think Melissa, for a second. Go long on it, all right? Really, you're a beautiful storyteller, so go long. <laughs> okay, so All right, I got one. Um, oh god, but which one? I've got two weirdly grocery store stories and I'm going to tell you All right, I'll tell you I'll tell you the longer one and then I'll give you the chaser one. Uh 
afterwards. So um, this was probably, I was definitely working as a dom. It was in my early days. So I, I was like flush. I had money and I was excited to spend money because I had never had money like that before. And I was still into the job and I was just like feeling super powerful and hot all the time. Um, and I decided to go shopping at the Whole Foods in Chelsea again, actually. Um, and like on 24th street or whatever. And so I go shopping there and I should preface this by saying that I was a total thief. I had been stealing for a really long time. Like I started stealing makeup when I was like 13. And, um, again, it was just sort of like getting off on the, on the secret stuff. I, I, I was, I enjoyed being a thief and I was always like a really obvious thief. Like I was not a mastermind. I would just sort of go in and pick things up and wander around and then wander out with them. I once wandered out of a health food store with a watermelon in my arms. Like, um, that was the kind of thief I was. I love it. Um, so I went to Whole Foods and I got my shopping cart and I was like doing a big shop and I used to like to walk. I love grocery stores. I find them really comforting, just like the bounty of everything. And so I would go and just walk up and down every single aisle and like snake my way around the entire store. And so I was doing that. And like, you know, I was obviously dressed in something ridiculous, like thigh high leather boots and a mini skirt and like too much makeup, not what someone should be wearing to shop at Whole Foods. And so I'm walking around and what I would do while I was shopping, I would be filling up my cart with like trying out the spicy truffle oil or whatever um but I also was like snacking the whole time and this was just like a habit that I had had in grocery stores for many many years and it's particularly when I was a junkie when I was younger and I didn't have any money I would just go in the grocery store and like eat a meal while I was walking (laughs) around and then walk out (laughs) I was sort of how I would feed myself and but I was actually shopping this time and I was filling up my cart so I wasn't even thinking that I was like stealing I was just sampling, you know? And so I, I like went to the fresh bar and I filled up a whole container and I ate it while I was shopping. And then I threw the trash behind the dog food. And then I like picked up a little fancy bar and took one bite of it and then wrapped it up and threw it behind like paper towels or whatever. And I was just sort of doing this throughout the whole store. And I, I probably spent, I spent like hundreds of dollars. Right. So I, so, um, Oh, and before actually, I should have told this earlier, but when I walked into the store, I, um, at this point I was like thinking, I was always fantasizing about getting a regular job and like doing, being sort of a straight person. And I was never really serious about it, but I was always sort of curious about passing in the regular world. And so when I walked into the store, they had a sign that said they were hiring (laughs) and I filled out a job application. Um, okay. And I handed it in. So yeah. I had done that when I walked into the store. And then I went and did my shop and I checked out and I paid for my food. And I was like taking, wheeling all my bags towards the exit. And this man walks up to me and he was like, excuse me, miss, um, could you step aside for a second? And I kid you not, I was like, oh, are you going to interview me for a job? And he was like, <laughs> he was like, no, we're not interviewing you for a job. And I walked into this little back room and he had pulled out 
all of the little half-eaten granola bars and the empty like fruit salad container and he had like a whole pile of like refuse from my snacking and was like you stole all of this while you were shopping I've been watching you on the cameras the entire time um and then he took my picture and he stuck it up on the wall and I was uh, banned for life actually from Whole Foods although I have since violated that ban uh-oh. So um, that is a shopping while high story. I love it. I love it. The funniest <laughs> thing, though, is if you had done it in, like, Fine Fair or some associated store, they would have <laughs> let you eat with impunity. It was because <laughs> in Whole Foods, they're going to, they're gonna. I'm scared of, like, taking something out of the buffet and, like, not having it in the right place. And, like, I'm scared of Whole Foods. Like, I feel like they're watching me, and you're, like, this ridiculous dominatrix all, like, dressed up eating. I love it. It. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. That was that was sort of the cute one, which was of course like completely humiliating. Um, I will also say that I was really surprised when I looked at the wall of shame of all of the shoplifters that they had pictures of. It was almost all super old people. It was like all people in their seventies and eighties. I was like, it's oh, where I live. Interesting. No, that's where I grew up. I grew up in the big red buildings on Eighth Avenue, and everybody oh, that yeah, lives yeah. here are old and poor, and it's very sad mm-hmm. because I went to. The the fucking supermarket before I came to my dad's, everything is like three times what it costs anywhere else in this neighborhood. And these old people have to steal. It's very, it's sad, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was going to I was mm-hmm. hoping you would say it was just pictures of dominatrixes on the wall. In the <laughs> I wish, I wish. Let me, um, no, let me tell you my chaser story. This one's short. It's another grocery store story. And this is just in the like, C-Town in Bed-Stuy and I was kicking dope for the millionth time and I did not have any Valium or whatever methadone or whatever would help ease the kicking and so something that used to help sometimes like for a few minutes was um, nitrous like doing whippets Um, and so I took myself dope sick to the C-Town on Fulton Avenue and I went and I got a basket and I got a, I went and got, you know, the like super tall cans of ready whip, like the like 50% extra. And I filled it up with those and I went in some empty aisle and I just did like whip it after whip it after whip it with all of these cans um, of ready whip. And then I dumped them behind some other stuff in a different aisle. And then I went and like bought a pack of gum when I was checking, when I was checking out, um, similarly, this was super mortifying and not funny at all. Um, the manager of the store came out and like running towards the register I was at with an arm full of all the empty cans yelling at me and just sort of, you know, sent me, made me pay for it and then sent me away. And that one felt like particularly humiliating also because I was sick, but also because it was like, it felt local. Like it wasn't the man. It was just like this dude and his grocery store in bed Like that was not who I wanted to be stealing from. It was a bummer. Wow. All, also, you're fucking dealing with the cum- being dope sick and then how it feels after you huff ready whip you feel like shit so you're I leaving know. the store with this whippet hangover shame 
and dope sick. That's like that's pretty bad. That's that. I it was a that. bad. It was a bad scene. Now I think about that stuff. Like my short term memory is so bad now. Me too. And I'm like, I could have skipped those whippets. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I have like serious dental problems, and I fantasize about nitrous. You know what I mean? Like, oh uh, yeah. So yeah. Let me ask you one more question. You're a professor in Iowa. Iowa. You're a, an adjunct professor, associate. You know, you. I went to SUNY Purchase, by the way. That was. I know you oh, taught you? there. Yeah, I went to Purchase. I did my first heroin at Purchase. When did you teach there? I taught there from let's see, from 2007 to like 2011, 2010. Yeah, is that right? No, I think it was even longer than that. It was like 2006 to 2011. I, yeah, I taught there. I loved Purchase. And my question is basically, you know, you're a, a very rugged person. You've done a lot of crazy shit. I mean, just that Whippet story alone I think is great. Um, <laughs> how often do your students, like, want to hear about your exploits as a junkie or as a dominatrix? How often do they approach you about it kind of like curiously about the wildness of your story? Yeah, never. Never. It's really weird. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I think one of the things is that sometimes they feel intimidated and it's like a space as their professor where I don't know. They, you know, and I think I've found ways over the years to sort of make it clear that like, I'm not interested in answering dominatrix questions in the classroom. Um, but even outside of the classroom, like in office hours or with students that I've become close with and I'm sort of mentoring, they almost never do. And I don't really know what that's about. I don't know if it's that they, I mean, I, a lot of them, I mean, especially when I started out, they had read my first books, so, you know, definitely. But I don't, I think maybe it's just like, we don't talk about that stuff in regular life. It doesn't feel polite. And they can't, even though I've written a book about it and it's public, um, they can't quite get over feeling like it's bad manners to ask me about this thing that a lot of people are embarrassed about. You know what I mean? Um, although I will say that like, being sober, I have definitely sort of outed myself. You know, I mean, I'm always out. I wrote a book about it, but um, but I will definitely have students sometimes who have substance abuse problems, and them I always talk about like my sobriety, and I've definitely like 12 stuck a lot of people <laughs> through my job. Um, but I find it weird. Like if I had a professor who wrote about being a junkie and a dominatrix, I would have been all over that with so many questions. But they don't usually ask. Kids it's today, funny. they're they're missing out. I know. On a great opportunity. It really are. I'm just thinking, really I, are. do you mind if I ask you a couple more things before you go? No, not at all. Not okay. At all. First thing is like, I don't know, I guess I was so distracted by the fact that you were a dominatrix and shitting on people and stuff. I didn't <laughs> think about your place in the kind of pantheon of junkie memoirs. Like, were you a fan of drug memoirs of that kind of stuff? Yes. Like, so who did yes. you like? I mean, this is one of those things, kind of like the drug box and dare, where it was just like instinct. Even when I was a little kid, I loved stories of junkies, particularly addicts and alcoholics of all stripes, but particularly junkies. I just liked it. Like William Burroughs's Junkie was like a book I carried around with me for a while. Um, uh, Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries. Um, what else? 
even like that sort of cautionary propaganda book, like Go Ask Alice, um, anything I could get my hands on about junkies. Um, I loved it. I'm going to think of like a hundred more when I get off no, no, here. No, no, but no. I, I know what you mean. And I think it's just amazing that your book is now in that pantheon and that, I mean, imagine if you have like a Burroughs or a Carol in front of you, you're going to ask them all those questions or I would. It's true. It, it's, it's shocking mm-hmm. to me at purchase with all those drug addict kids at purchase that nobody, <laughs> there are so many, I know <laughs> that nobody came up to you about that. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The other question is like the power as a professor versus the power as a dominatrix. Is there any mm-hmm. similarity? Uh, I know you probably did a lot of teacher fantasy shit when you were a yeah. dominatrix. So do you, do you do you recall that once in a while when you're working or no? You know, I never think about it while I'm teaching because I teaching is one of the things like I love it and there's a lot of sort of self-forgetting like I'm very rarely thinking about anything else while I'm doing it which is part of what I love about it but there are a lot of parallels and I have thought about them um, I actually think that teaching is similar in many ways to being a dominatrix but without all of the stuff I didn't like and without the kind of dishonesty that was in it for me because as a teacher it's a performance job right like I'm definitely performing and have to be sort of charismatic and keep people's interest um and I'm also in charge. I'm the boss in the room. You know what I mean? Like the, the one of the things I love about being a teacher is that like whatever whatever uh, people in positions of authority there are over me, they're almost never watching me do my work. When I'm in the classroom, I'm directing the whole experience. I'm sort of creating an experience for my students and we're moving through it together. And it feels afterwards similar to how it used to feel after a really good session where it felt like I sort of had put on a concert or something and I was like exhausted and exhilarated. That's awesome. It's so cool. Yeah. It's also just like the best thing is that you got to... You know, you talk about it as touristing almost through dominatrixing or mm-hmm. or are sometimes I think about like I was a drug addict for a long time, you know, way too long. And I and I like really I suffered and I I didn't get to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do. Um but now that I get to do other things, I just feel so lucky that I got to do those things too. And I, I mm-hmm. just, I put myself in your shoes and I'm like, that's so cool that you've, you got to do all these things and now you're doing what you love and writing and teaching. And it's like, it's amazing, right? It is. I feel so lucky all the time. Like, like this has been a really hard year um, for everybody, I think, and, and for me too. But there just like isn't a day that has gone by in the last, like it'll be, I'll be celebrating 17 years in December. Amazing. And there isn't a day that's gone by that I'm not like pinching myself. I feel so lucky. All right. Well, you were a joy to have on the Dobie podcast, Melissa. So thank you so much. It was my joy. It was my joy. Thank you so much for having me. Right on. If, if there's anything uh, I can ever do, just never hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much. All right. Right on. Have a good day. Thank you again. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, Melissa Phoebos. Yeah, that that was a weird and weird way to end that. It's it, it's so hard for me to hear me sound so I'm, gross. I'm sure you were genuine in your sentiment, but it sounded like you're like, if you ever want to call me late at night when All you're right, wearing right. Get your, get your, brawn panties, call get, me. Get your mind out of the gutter, right? <laughs> if you ever want to talk about anything. If you ever want to shit on my face, yeah. don't hesitate. Um, that the, in the book, right? And I wish I, I, I want to read this book. I'll, I'll give it to you in the book. I wish I had talked to her more about this. 
when she gives the brown shower, she describes the scene that she chugs down like three cups of coffee. (laughs) Sitting in there, she smokes three cigarettes, and then she she can't shit on him standing. So she needs to get the chair. Yeah, the seat. So she can sit down and properly shit on the guy, right? So, So um. In the book, she says that she can't believe what her shit smelled like, and that because she was a vegetarian, yeah. the shit came out quickly. Yeah, um, which I'm sure you would not have that issue. What I'm sure be? the shit doesn't come quickly out of you because you eat such terrible food. I, I eat I'm sure good. she's a healthy. Ve- you do not eat good. You eat you you eat. Very I told bad. you what I had for dinner last night. Yeah, but you had a baguette with peanut butter and regular butter for breakfast. And you have two breakfast burritos at Taco Bell. Chipotle chips and salsa. Fucking avocado, whatever it is. I, an, I have an uh, avocado yesterday with some uh, cheese and onion, like a caprice salad and tomato. Listen, you only tell me the good stuff. You have ice cream for breakfast, pubic hairs for lunch. <laughs> what kind of diet is that? I just can't imagine shitting on somebody at work. I, I feel like that was my whole career at Katzen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's serious fucking business. Serious business. And um, I didn't want to get all into the, the actual sex yeah. that is involved. I in, think it's like the men are jerking off, right? Well, she what she said about, about their dungeon yeah. was that... Often the dominatrix would jerk off the guy in the end. Oh, so it's not quite o- sex. Almost to keep it moving kind yeah. of thing. Oh, let's go, yeah. And also to make sure time's that... Time's up. Well, time's up, and then this, you're getting something out of this besides being dominated or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I really... The book is great. She also had a couple other books. She wrote a memoir. She wrote a book called Abandon Me. Oh. Um, she's, she's a professor now. She's a professor, and she was an amazing dopey guest. Yeah, she was, that was really interesting. I listened to the last 10 minutes early this morning. But you know, I told you about the Pandora's box thing with the phone. Set the scene for the Dopey Nation. So uh, there's a dungeon called Pandora's Box and they put an ad up, I guess in the Village Voice or one of these papers and they put my phone number for their phone number. It was one digit off. And so I would get calls at like 1 a.m. midnight and like, I'd like to make an appointment with Mistress Dominique and I'd be like, hang up, you know, and it would just happen and I'd be like, wrong number. And then I was like, I'm going to fuck with these guys. And like, I called Pandora's box. I'm like, you're putting my number in your ad and they didn't change it. So I'm like, okay. So I would say, uh, Mistress Dominique is not available, but uh, Master Mark is available. And I would talk some of these guys into it. I'm like, he's available at 2 a.m. if you want to make an appointment. I was surprised how many of them. I'm like, a lot of people that call for Mistress Dominique like the experience with Master Mark. And they'd go, okay. What I'm surprised about is that you didn't have them come over and you didn't take their money and you didn't. I should have done that. I should have done that. I'll beat you in front of you. Come to my building. I'll beat you in the lobby. The other thing that I didn't talk to her too much about was the actual pain involved in, in like, being... I, I guess, like, again, I, I mentioned it during the interview. My only experience around any of this stuff is, like, Mel Brooks movies oh. and, like... Yeah, it's physically hard work. Well, I'm just talking For about... For the women. But, like, to be dominated... Yeah. There's a lot of pain. You get tased, your nipple oh, clamps, yeah. fucking pain. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's... Uh, 
It's something that I was, I've never been comfortable with pain. I put an ad on Craigslist in 2008 in the recession. I lost all my painting work. I, I thought... Uh, my fucking dad's phone. Hold I've, on. Yeah. It would not be uh, dopey in Manhattan without my father's six phones ringing at once. Oh, yeah. So I put an ad on Craigslist, and I thought, how can I do this without having sex with anybody? So I thought, I'll do, stomp, I'll, like, put my feet on your face or, like, do, like, foot stuff or uh, stomping videos where they mail you something and you videotape them stomping. I got one response, and it was like, what size are your feet? Oh motherfucker! <laughs> They're calling back. So what size? That, what size did they want? Uh, well, I told them what my shoe size was. They wanted to know my age and my shoe size, and they were like, "I can get someone with bigger feet that's much younger for half the price." I'm like, "Well, I guess I'm done in this field." That's a, a lyric from the Prince song. What is? What's your age? What's your suit? Oh, size? act your age, not your shoe size. Yeah. yeah. I knew somebody that was a dominatrix, and this dude would come over, and he was a paraplegic, and he would come with like braces and you know canes, and then she would beat him and beat him and beat him, and she felt so bad, and then he would like go out and like be on the braces, and then one day she saw him walking, and it, and it, 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 he would make make her beat him so hard it would like wear her out, so he was like doing a mind fuck with her. And then she saw him on the street, and he was perfectly fine. Wow. Yeah. He was See, doing, doing a mind fuck to her. That's like next level um, cosplay. Is yeah, that the expression? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, it's very interesting. It's, it's like it's, it's how willing somebody is to pretend or role play or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's far out. Um, Wait, it wasn't paraplegic. That person couldn't walk. It'd be like a person with like muscular dystrophy. It'd be like a quadriplegic. No, it'd be like somebody who has trouble walking. Right, I understand. So he would fake being crippled. Yes. She'd beat the shit out of him, wear herself down yes. to almost being crippled, yeah. then go out in the street, couldn't barely walk home, and see him like dancing yeah. or something. Yeah, right. Well, again, that's Melissa Phoebos. Her book is uh, Whip Smart, recommended by, uh, what's her face, Emily Sullivan of the Dopey Nation. Oh, that's how you found her? Yeah. And, um, and I loved it. I thought she was great. Um, now, there's this thing that's been bothering me. It's been on my show notes for months. What and is I, it? And I haven't mentioned it. You're looking at my... It's not really on the show I notes. can't read your It's notes. just been in my mind, <laughs> which is that I've had some lingering effects from COVID. I hear that a lot. A lot of people have it. And... What's yours? I have a few. One of them, I think my brain is totally addled. That's always been like that. No, I think I had That's some... That's not COVID. No, I think, like, <laughs> I think, I, I think back to the period where I got COVID and shortly thereafter, and I, my memory is like, shit, I can, like, I had a problem at work, and, I'm, and I, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about this problem at work, trying to trace back the source, and Oh, when you spaced out about the invoices. Yes, and there's a blank... And, and it was the COVID time. And I think if you look up COVID long-lasting effects, it says addled brain. I've heard a lot of people say they're just still tired. Oh, no addledness? I haven't seen that. How about the smell? Did I ever tell you about the smell? You, don't, you can't smell anymore. No, I can smell. But, and this is a disgusting story. And I, we, might, we might just take this right out. No, as is this shit? Is yeah. there shit involved? Yeah. <laughs> In when Melissa Phoebos shit on the dude... And she talked about the smell of her own shit. It triggered me to this COVID thought, which is, I never really minded the smell of my shit. 
and I, I certainly never minded the smell of my farts. I, I kind of liked it. And when I lost my smell during COVID, I couldn't smell my shit or my farts again. And one day I went to buy the stupid Thai Chinese food that we constantly get in my house and I ate it and I could taste again. And it was it was like it's a, a miracle, but it was like a bad version of their taste. Like it was just it wasn't that good. Oh, and later that night I farted and it smelled like their food. Oh, and now every time I shit or fart, it smells like their food. And no matter what you eat, no matter what I eat, it's like this that's, terrible so that's your fucking nose is doing that. It's a ter- it's my brain. It's yeah, something. it's COVID, and it, it it's addled my brain. And you don't think that addling and and these things are are built in? Maybe I don't know. Is this too disgusting to put into the no, show? Nothing's too disgusting for the show. Are you sure? <laughs> All right, I'm going to read a dopey email. Okay. Okay. You want to read it? You read it. <laughs> Or you'll just make fun of my reading if I read it. Well, you're, not, you're never, you've been a traditionally bad reader. But you read here. It's a long oh, one. Oh, God. We'll have you muddle your way. I haven't. When I read at an online AA meeting and I read two paragraphs, it's an out of body experience for me. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm saying. And I can't understand anything I'm saying, but I say all the words. It's terrifying. Well, what about here? What about in Dopey? Sort of the same thing. Here, we got to switch seats. Okay. Hey, Dave, Ray, the rest of the Dopey Nation. This is the OG Dopey Scholarship Awardee, Josh Clark, writing from southwest Wisconsin for an update. Since the month at Mountainside, which aside from Valentine's weekend, which Dave had to talk me out of flying home, was great. Great folks all around, the best. And I was in a terrible state of, of mind at that point. My girlfriend, Ashley, had just died at the beginning of November from her overdose just shy of her 33rd birthday, from carfentanil, which I don't, I don't believe I knew the last time. Oh, boy. Hold on. You might be the worst reader in the history of the Dopey Show. <laughs> Wait. How do you... Oh, this thing is so long. I talked to you, but the talks report skew, showed... Uh, showed right, forget it. Just come here. <laughs> you finish it. All right. This is from Josh Clark. He was the first Toodles for Chris uh, Dopey Scholarship recipient. If you don't remember, his girlfriend had overdosed and died. Just I remember this, yeah. All right, so he writes, and I wanted you to read it because he mentions you, and I know you like it when people mention your name. Well, I made the mistake of reading the Apple reviews for the first time, and I was like, well, I don't exist. Well, write a review. They're like, and then- I love the show, and I love it when Linda or Alan stop by, and I'm like, why am I not in any of these? Well, Dopey Nation, they've, Ray has thrown the gauntlet. I think you need to start writing reviews about loving Ray. <laughs> so we need reviews. Mention Ray or Chris or my dad. Just don't write bad reviews about me. I, I just, I've had it with that. There's anyway, one bad review. Dude, there's 35 one-star reviews, and each of them hold a horrible place in my heart. One of them said something terrible about me. They said I was hygienically challenged. Wow. Well, I remember the rimming, the rimming the toilet bowl. <laughs> well, I didn't do that. Not to mention the, the hours of 69ing on, whatchamacallit, on uh, Cialis <laughs> or whatever. Hey, Dave, Ray, and the rest of the Dopey Nation. This is the OG Dopey Scholarship awardee, Josh Clark, writing from Southwest Wisconsin with an update. Since the month at Mountainside, which aside from Valentine's weekend, which Dave had to talk me out of flying home, was great. 
Great folks all around the best. And I was in a terrible state of mind at that point. My girlfriend Ashley had just died at the beginning of November from her overdose just shy of her 33rd birthday from carfentanil, which I don't believe I knew the last time I talked to you. But the tox report showed you what we had bought as fentanyl turned out to test as all fucking car fentanyl. So even your fucking fentanyl is being laced with even stronger fucking fentanyl. So know that your fentanyl could be a hundred times stronger than what you expected. And of course, ununiformly mixed for sure. That's interesting, right? Uh, losing Ashley left a lot of us devastated in its wake. No more so than her seven-year-old son. He's doing well, though. He's still living with her mom and stepdad. I try and make it to see him every week or two, and we always go and spend time in Ashley's garden, the flower garden her mother erected in her memory. Sometimes we'll leave small figurines on the stone wall that hold the sign holding her name, and we always remind her we love and miss her. Me and Ash's family have remained very close, and they've been rooting for me this whole time. While I was in Mountainside, I only called four people. One was my mom, one was Ash's mom, one was Ash's sister, and one was Dave. That's me. After Dave talked me into staying, he helped orchestrate the move to transcend Sober House in Los Angeles for two months, which, again, everybody was great at. I got back near the start of May, and immediately after the 14-day self-quarantine, I relapsed. For a week, I was snorting fentanyl, uh, intermusculating ketamine, and smoking meth. It was hard returning to the farm, the place Ashley and I, Ashley had died, and trying to just continue on. But the sober time had definitely helped me process and move forward through the grieving process much faster than if I had continued trying to kill myself staying high on fentanyl and meth. The relapse just showed me the drugs weren't going to fix my loneliness or get rid of my self-pity. So I kicked again. I did really good. I did really good. I even hit some meetings, one with Ashley's mom, who just came alone for support. And then the universe decided to smile on me again. In the same month, I was given the option to be mentored by a nationally renowned chainsaw sculptor, Buzzsaw Bob. And I also met a super cute and very cool chick. And both those things have since continued great. Emily and I see see each other often. And although we're having issues with our dogs getting along, we are getting along great. And the chainsaw sculpting is great too. And I'm able to make money from it. Sculpting mushrooms, eagles, bears, dogs. I am loving it. Just following the start of both great new adventures while things were looking up. My aunt, who is in active addiction and whose prominent uh, drug of choice is meth, showed up for an impromptu visit one evening and, of course, brought along meth. Not much longer than it took her to pull out of the bubble and ask if I was still using, and I was suddenly once again still using. By the time her and her friend left, I was high as fuck. It took me three weeks to tell Emily, who's been sober for five years, uh, her drug of choice being alcohol. She let me know that it didn't matter how sweet I was to her, that if I go back to the opiates or meth, she won't be around. And I already knew Buzzsaw wouldn't have any of it either. So I'm back at three weeks sober again, but feeling way more confident each fucking time. Thanks, Dave, for everything. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. That's a great email. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah, twice he's gotten clean since he got out of rehab. Well, I've seen his chainsaw stuff on Dopey Nation. Love Josh. Yeah. I don't communicate with Josh nearly as much as I would like, and I will reach out to him today. But uh, it just goes to show, right? Like, well, when- I think that the ant thing goes to show, like, you have to be so careful about 
even inviting having somebody over to your house. His close family is all using. His parents are using. Oh. Everybody's using. Oh. That's why I was like, move to fucking LA. Move anywhere, yeah. But he has his farm, he has his dog, he has his life, you oh. know. And uh but it's very dangerous. But thank God he met this sober cute girl and he's having fun. No, we've all had that thing of like we're not doing something and then somebody comes along and then we're doing it. Right, right, absolutely. Um don't bring it into my house. Yeah, I mean, if if you're on the fence and you're struggling, you you got to stay away. You're not going to make it. You know, it's like it's like the all the old expressions. It's like uh, sitting in a if you're in a tattoo parlor, you're going to get a tattoo, <laughs> or, or if you're at the barber shop, you're going to get a haircut, yeah. or whatever. But like, if you're fucking a meth addict, and uh, or if you are a meth addict, and your aunt comes over with meth. It'll be hard not to get on him. Now. Yeah. Wait, what's she doing? She's like coming over and like breaking out a pipe. That's, I mean, I, I when I was using, I, I would do stuff like that. I mean, that's, Todd did that to me. I did that to people. It's yeah, like, it's part of the relationship. Right. Give me that. You're like, no, I don't want it. And then you're like, fucking give me that. Well, it's here. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's very hard, you know? Um, one thing that I always think about now is... Um, you know, I stopped using because my life was miserable. Yeah. Um, and I was in big trouble and I didn't have anything to show for it. But I remember as soon as I got sober, the thing that hit my head was like limitless possibility. You know what I mean? Yep. And like the beauty of limitless possibility that I anything could happen. Anything good could happen. Yeah. And like... Certainly, there was very limited possibility with getting high. You can get high, or you won't get high, and you're going to get sick, and you might die. I remember thinking, I can go places at night and drive home. Like, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do anything at night. Exactly. There's, there's a lot of potential to have a nice life if you're sober. But dopey is not about preaching. I just want to say that. Sober, to have infinite possibility is a nice thing. Well, like, the first time I went to Ireland, I was I was newly sober, and I was like... I could never have done this if I was drinking. I would have fucked this thing up from the very beginning. Totally. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening in the Dopey Nation. Like what? Well, I don't know if you know this guy, Dickie. No. But Dickie organized a Dopey art contest and had people oh. making Dopey designs. And the winner of the Dopey art contest was the great Colleen Marie with oh. her Dopey tarot card of the fool. Have you not oh, seen I it? Oh, I saw that. But great. I didn't know there was a Dopey art but I went through Dopey uh, visuals because I, I was taking them to put in the video for my DopeyCon song. People are doing some really cool Dopey Zoom uh, flyers. Yes. And I, 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 what I think is, first of all, thank you, Dickie, for creating that contest. I don't know why you never wrote I never, me, though. Oh. He never wrote me. Scott Wick told me about it. I want more Dopey art. Send me all your dopey art to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Um, I will be making stickers of Colleen Marie's Fool. There will be new dopey stickers coming out. Um, Misty's shit is looking incredibly great as usual. Um, I'm going to play. Somebody made a dopey pumpkin. I think it was. Oh, that was uh, Karina. Um, and then another crazy national dopey news. Oregon, it's legal to smoke crack and shoot heroin. Now. Yeah, I saw that. It's crazy. Everything is legal. It's like Portugal. But I don't think you could go to the store and buy heroin. No, crack. but if you're caught with like a gram of crystal, then there's like, I think you get drug counseling. It's not, you don't just walk away. 
I, I wonder if you have to give the drugs to them. That would suck. I'm sure. I mean, like, who knows? <laughs> I need those drugs. <laughs> I, I just don't know why, like, I don't know why all addicts and all dealers don't just move there. It's like Amsterdam in the wire. <laughs> it's like they should all move to Portland. And there's been a lot of great moving to Portland to shoot dope memes coming out as well. But I think that's wild. And New Jersey got legal weed. For some reason, that just annoys the shit out of me, the legal weed in New Jersey. New Jersey annoys you. Yeah, it just, it, I can't help it. But if they, if they take your crystal in Portland, and, and then you're like, well, fuck, now I just have to get $60 again and go buy another eighth or whatever. That's interesting. I, I, wonder, I wonder what how it works, the, the legal drugs in Portland. The, I mean, in the, before, you would go to jail and you'd be like, fuck, now I'm, I'm in jail and I'm, I'm coming down. Well, it's funny also. All right. Well, you know, yeah, exactly. That's much worse. Um, there's a dude, you know the kid, the kid from West Virginia, the banjo oh, player? Oh, yeah, yeah. He moved to Oregon. To shoot dope? No. He moved to Oregon to <laughs> grow weed. He works on a, like a, oh, a weed oh. farm out there. And... Uh, I think he's like fuck now now because he he got off a of dope and now he's like oh. fuck and now it's legal here and it's like you so know. much dope on the west coast. Well, I mean, there's dope, everywhere. there's dope yeah, everywhere. everywhere. Um, I wonder when Kensington is going to go legal. Probably never. It's uh, basically legal now. It's just a classic Oregon thing, though, right? I I guess it's a classic like drug promoting Oregon thing. You know what I think we should do? I think we should call my dad. And have my dad check. Oh, he hasn't yeah. been on the show in so He doesn't long. know you're calling. No. Let's, let's try it. Hello? Hey, Dad. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I'm recording the show. I'm with Ray at your house, and you're on the show. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm right on the golf course in Bennington, Vermont right now. That's perfect, because I don't want you on the show for too long. <laughs> but I'm curious, Dad... We haven't talked about the show in a while. How are you feeling? What's going on with you? I'm feeling all right. I don't know if the phone connector is going to be good. I'm, I'm feeling all right. It's like almost 70 degrees here now. Well, if, if Dopey Nation, if you aren't a member of Dopey Patreon, perhaps you don't know that my father fainted multiple times, was rushed to the hospital because he had an ulcer from his terrible diet. So how has your stomach been, Dad? My stomach has been okay. My stomach has been okay. Uh, I had too much pizza the other night uh, watching the election. I was very nervous. Uh, but now I'm more calm. I'm calmed down. Well, so good. So you feel good. You're on the golf course. The big question is, what do you think about the show lately? Any criticisms? Oh, uh, yeah, you know, I have tons and tons of criticism, but <laughs> the, the, the main thing is I want the show to continue to help people. That's the main thing. Well, what's, um, I don't, I, I listen, I'm, not, I'm not looking for the upside. What's the downside, yeah. Dad? Well, you, you know, you still get angry over things you shouldn't get angry at. Uh, not that I can come up with a specific thing, but, uh, but you know, to be calm and cool is important. Uh, I don't know what the latest, uh, the latest spec with anybody was, but uh, it's, it's important uh, for you to be calm and cool with the whole thing. So you stopped listening. It sounds like you stopped listening to the show. No, no, I've been, I've been listening. I've been having trouble with the, with the connection uh, upstate, but I'm going, I'm going to be home. I'm going to go home tomorrow and I'll be home over the weekend. Uh, I, I was listening. I was trying to listen to the guy from New Zealand. I, I started the beginning. That was on the Patreon thing, I think. Um, Mike, Mike, somebody, Mike Poppin. You heard and that? You heard that I went golfing? 
Oh, that's ridiculous. You should never go golfing. That that's crazy. You're gonna you're gonna not be happy. Even though your grandfather who complained about golfing forever and ever, all of a sudden he he started to play and and he was liking it. So I, I don't know, it's very frustrating. You really, made you made sure never to include you made sure never to include me in your golf outings. Yeah. Hi, hi Alan, it's Ray. Why should Dave never go golfing? Because it's very frustrating. I oh, mean, he, he, can get he might like he might like bend uh, the iron. No, my yeah. dad. My listen. My dad, in his neglectful parenting of me, he would go <laughs> out and he'd golf. He would do all these fun things. Where and and because I wasn't good at stuff, he couldn't tolerate me being around him. And I'm realizing that uh, time out. I'm realizing that was there. He goes again. I mean, again, again, he's picking on me for no, no reason. It was was, neglect because I I was so bad at stuff and you were so impatient that you couldn't deal with having a child that was not athletically gifted. So you neglected me, shunned me so you wouldn't be more abusive. You you abuse well, me, me through neglect, <laughs> turning turning you into a heroin addict. It's terrible. You're terrible. You're, you're, that's not true at all. I was not neglectful. Uh, you're how old are you now? I mean, you're 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 still sticking around, so you're not neglectful. You're, you're hanging in there. It would be neglected, and I think it might be a piece of why I was an intravenous heroin addict. Now that I think, I, now that I'm really thinking about this clearly. Oh yeah, right. Again, pushing the pushing the blame on your on your father. Then, right? That that's the opposite of what good thinking is supposed to be. You're supposed to be you're supposed to be getting this higher power for yourself and not blaming any other people for this. And and then because of this ne- neglectfulness, Alan had to pay for your rehab. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he just exactly. threw, he just like th- it has he, anything to do with neglect. He threw money uh, at the problem that he could have thrown love at. He, repl- he, he equated love with money and threw money at my problem. It's All right, I think you're getting carried away here with, with I'm too just, much uh, baloney. I'm surprised that you have... I'm just, it's I don't not, think it's fun so much anymore for you to keep picking on me like this. It's not it's like you. True. I was a very loving father. I still love you up to the sky. Are listen, you kidding? listen, just relax. Listen, the, the, yeah. I'm just shocked that you have no criticisms of the show that I have to play. The, he said he has tons of criticism. He has nothing. I can tell well, he has nothing. But he, listen, he, it's hard. It's hard to listen to the dopey stories. I mean, when they complain about you not putting enough recovery, I think you should put more recovery. Uh, I think I think uh, I think it's more more important to push the positive than to keep talking about the negative. Unless, of course, you're really laughing at some of this stuff. Because some of the stuff that they survived and did such horrible things, looking back, is pretty funny. But at the time, it sure as the heck wasn't funny. You know, so I don't know. This the mixture of recovery and the old stories. I you're you're trying to figure it out. So I, you know that's what happened. All right, let me hit the stupid ball here. All right. Yeah, this might have been this might have been your worst appearance ever, Dad. So thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Bye, Alan. I love you, and you're a ter- you're a terrific. I'm showing up on Sunday. You're a, you're an amazing father. Besides the neglect and the heroin addiction, you were really perfect. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Yeah, now now you're telling another nonsense. I'm nobody's perfect. But listen, you try your best. Anyway, you know I'm going up on Sunday. I'll see you on Sunday, Dad. Have a good have a good a good time on the links. All right, love to you and Ray, and uh, toodles to the Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris too. Okay, right. bye, Dad. Bye, bye. Well, there he is. 
What you think? That was great. Um, now, before we go, normally I would like to play a voicemail, but this week I'm going to read Sam's cliff notes of the voicemail. We got a voicemail. The condensed version. I, I think the voicemail got lost. I sent it to Sam, and he sent me this back. The synopsis. It's his synopsis. He says, describes his issue with recording the voicemail. He has a good voice. On his third microphone, never tried heroin, straight alcoholic, was hanging out with a guy, gave him money for drugs, and the guy ghosted. Then a year later, he came back, and the guy pretended to be his cousin. Keep seeing him around. Then he comes around again, and he smokes crack with him. Then he gives the guy a steak and cheap vodka to leave. Nothing really happens in this story, but the guy thinks he's the greatest. Recommend no. And that's Sam's synopsis. That sounds like a lot happened. Sounds like a very, very robust, dopey voicemail. Listen, I need dopey voicemail. I want to hear the voicemail now. Send in a dopey voicemail. Make it dopey. Make it five minutes. It's the first dopey voicemail that involves stakes. I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ray, it was a pleasure as always. But before we go. Yes. Tomorrow night, which is Friday night, at the Dopey Zoom speaker meetings, the great Ray Brown, the master of the G-Folk movement, (laughs) gay Ray, master pubic hair eating... Yeah. <laughs> I was toilet bowl licking. I was out the door, and then Dave was like, "We didn't talk about the dopey speaker meeting." The master of disaster. I don't have like I don't have great stories. The person who washes his clothes <laughs> with them on, <laughs> Ray Brown. I have very boring stories. I've realized. He's like, so I went out and I drank a bunch of fortified vodka and I ate a big spaghetti and meatballs meal, and then I threw up. And uh, my husband had to drag me up the steps. (laughs) A lot of that. And then there's this time where I went to score heroin, but it was PCP. (laughs) But I shot it anyway. I just realized, like, a lot of, like, my, everything was, like, alcoholic, drug addict. But I was so controlled, because, like, if I fucked up, then I wouldn't be able to take drugs and do alcohol. So I was very, like, in a way, like, like... Um, controlled with it because I didn't want to like not be able to do it. And then there was that time where I had sex with 5,000 guys. <laughs> not at once. The Will Chamberlain of the Dopey Nation, <laughs> Ray Brown, tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Yep. I'll see you there. On the Dopey Zoom speaker tapes. So, um, Ray, as always, it was a pleasure. I'm going to try to be there tomorrow night if I don't crash out. It's late. I might, I might crash out. Late in the evening. Too late yeah. for me. Um, so end the show, man. What uh, the fuck? Uh, do I have stay to beg strong, you? Dopey Nation. <laughs> Fucking toodles for Chris. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris.
Thank you. Thank you, everybody. You don't have a name for our band. Thank you very much.